0: Welcome to the Last In Line podcast, where we discuss faith, hope, and truth in the lives of amazing servant leaders. You are in the right place if you crave purpose and if you hunger for life of significance. This podcast applies biblical truth to our daily lives, and we pray that you walk away encouraged and inspired. This is the Last In Line podcast. Hey,
1: today we're welcoming Ike Miller to last in line podcast ike uh is a pastor and an author he's got a phd from trinity evangelical divinity school Uh, after confronting the impact of his own childhood of dysfunction and abuse family history of substance use disorders he developed a passion for helping others who grew up in difficult circumstances and it is a practical guide for navigating that journey and he draws scriptural wisdom, psychology, and personal experience to help us understand how traumatic childhood continues to affect people currently. So we have a great conversation. We talk about his life, his book, Good Baggage. It's been said that the heart of this book clearly depicts the desire to see the pain of childhood redeemed, Very excited for you to hear this conversation because it gives perspective on why people cover things up, why they suppress and even project dysfunctional emotions based on trauma in their adult life, and it also shows us how healing and redemption come through following Christ and our spiritual lives. So help me welcome. Ike Miller to Last in Line podcast. Ike Miller, the author of Good Baggage. Welcome to Last in Line podcast.
0: John, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm honored to be here. Honored to be a part of the conversation. Hey,
1: man, it's it's a new connection, and I'm excited about it. And I uh, appreciate your publisher reaching out, and they are great to work with. Uh, and so this will be fun. Uh, I've covered this topic in a way uh, indirectly over the last few years with different people, different authors. And um, yeah. I, I think this will be an interesting spin and take on just childhood trauma, kind of some of the baggage and scars, so to speak, uh, that we go through or that certain people go through. And and your story is unique, uh, obviously. And, and before, I, before I get into the book, we're going to cover, you know, maybe not cover to cover, but we're going to get into <laughs> it. Um, I will read a quote to you, back to you. It's yours, and I don't know if you're a big – you know, 80s rock music guy, but I know artists love it when the fans sing back their songs too then. So I'm going to give you a quote back to you that I read (laughs) out of one of your devotionals, um, the God's Healing for Your Difficult Childhood devotional, actually. Um, And it says, and this is you talking, that God is declaring the following about us, okay? He's declaring that what you thought was beyond repair are the broken pieces that he will use? Okay. The sacred wounds of your pain aren't scars but rebirth marks, identifying the unique contribution you will make in my world. And that's God's talking. So tell me a little bit for starters, kind of where you got that, where that how that got kind of born in your spirit and, and what that quote means to you right now.
0: Yeah, it, it covers a lot about what I cover in the book. Uh, but in particular kind of beginning with that mentality that I think a lot of us have about our childhood wounds or any kind of relational brokenness or pain that we've experienced where it can only mean negative things. It means I'm going to be bad at relationships. It means I'm damaged goods. It means uh, that I'm going to only have broken relationships myself. And you kind of start in that place where you're like, I just need to hide these i just need to push them away i need to do my best to cover them up so that people don't see them i need to interact in relationships in ways that people don't know that i've had this kind of pain in my past and so beginning there and then realizing in my own story that really it's impossible to pretend like those things haven't happened they they show up in our relationships they show up in our lives they show up in our mental and emotional health they show up in how we relate to god and so we can't hide them. We can't just bury them. They don't go away just because we bury them. And so what do we do with them? And so then the next step can be this mentality of, well, I just need God to forgive that. I just need God to um, to heal that and then I'll be okay. And that's an important part of the process. But if we stop there, we miss out on the fact that God can actually take that pain and that brokenness and actually now use it for good. He can use it in our own lives to help us help people that have been through the same stuff. I mean, that was one of the things that helped me so much as a child of divorce was saying, you know, I don't know why this happened. I, I wish it hadn't happened. But I can tell you, nobody knows what it's like to go through a parent's divorce, like a kid who's been through their parent's divorce. And so mm. how do I take that pain and that brokenness and find redemptive ways of using it? Yeah. So that's kind of a little bit of what's inside of that.
1: That's good, man. I'm glad we kind of scraped that surface a little bit, kind of whet the appetite of the listeners, because there is more to unpack with that for sure. I like the rebirth, Mark. That's a cool expression. Yeah. And it makes a ton of sense. Um so, just for the guys, and I'm you know I read a little bit about your your bio beforehand. um, but who is this guy? i mean let's let's talk about you and just <laughs> yeah. find out like your faith journey, you know, a little bit about your um you know, the divorce story that is part yeah. of your, you know, House that you're building about your story, but yeah. talk about that a little bit, and and I have a follow up question to that. But go into kind of your faith journey and a little bit of your childhood.
0: Yeah, so I grew up here in North Carolina. This is where I'm from. Um, I grew up a part of a church community. Uh, my my mom, my parents were both involved in our church. Um, but there was also a lot that just kind of was behind the scenes that our church didn't know. You know, my dad's alcoholism was one of those things. Um, The challenges in my parents' marriage, uh, but grew up in the church, uh, learning about Jesus from an early age, received Christ when I was nine years old, was baptized, all of that. Um, And during this time, my parents had a very tumultuous relationship in terms of arguments and uh, a lot of nights going to bed with them arguing and, uh, to the point where at some point I, I remember just praying like, God, just let them separate. I'm so tired of hearing this. And then um, a few years later, a couple of years later, they did get separated. And I'm thinking like, oh, no, what have I done? Why did I wish for this? You know, in the pain of like, did I cause this because I asked for it, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, then my father developed prostate cancer my, and my mom kind of saw that as a second chance for them. And he moved back home. Things seemed to be moving in a better direction, Uh, but eventually he went back to drinking, and things kind of went back to kind of the way they were and, and started disintegrating again. In the midst of all this, I became very involved in my youth ministry. I had a phenomenal youth pastor who I built a relationship with and a great youth ministry that I was a part of, and so that was really a place for me to not only belong and feel seen, but actually experience God in some really profound and powerful ways to the point of feeling a call to ministry. And so my parents were separated throughout high school. Um, and I, during that time, I was an athlete, so I played soccer. I wrestled uh, in a lot of ways. That was probably an outlet for me in some ways. But um, my parents ultimately uh, divorced when I was a senior in high school. And then I went off to college. Went into religion and Christian ministry to study uh, in undergrad because I felt this call to youth ministry, and uh, at the same time was kind of starting to wrestle with some things from early in my faith journey of, you know, uh, does this way of seeing God still work? I was really wrestling with questions around evangelism, all of that kind of stuff, Um, and then ended up going to Duke Divinity School, so I'm kind of giving the 30,000-foot view, but uh, went to Duke Divinity School, and in my first semester there, my father ended up passing away due to you know alcoholism and cirrhosis of the liver. And so that was obviously a pivotal season in my journey, um, but uh, continued through seminary there, met my wife there, um, ultimately went on to do PhD studies in theology, uh, and then got into ministry and have been doing ministry for the last i eight nine years so that's that's cool that's
1: good so yeah i mean my son you know he was on this baseball track in college and then had a kind of a defining faith moment when he went on a really a it was a mission trip but it was right here in texas and it was in one of the lower socioeconomic areas and he came back changed and now he's a youth pastor at our church and um it was it was pretty powerful transformation um did you have now through this time your dad being sick and kind of mom and dad off and on? Kind of talk to the listeners that might experience, even though you're in church, you're on this track of ministry and you're you know you, you're on fire for God. What do we do with feelings of anger toward God or maybe like okay, I thought I was supposed to trust you to heal this relationship or? You know, where where were you? You know, kind of one of those things. Did you ever have any of those? I mean, I'm sure you did, but talk to listeners yeah. maybe now that are battling some of that.
0: Yeah. You know, I think especially for those that are in in those high school years, middle school years where you're also kind of figuring out who am I and my identity and. I I developed this very real sense that my actions had consequences and my decisions had consequences, which from a personal standpoint were really good. I mean, it helped me to make better decisions because I knew that the decisions I made were going to have outcomes and consequences. But I think a downside to that or a flip side of that was, did that mean when I was disobedient that that mm. meant bad things in my parents relationship the, mm-hmm. were, were bad things happening there because that was punishment for things that I had done wrong and so being someone who was very conscientious of my faith at times it could be tempting or not even tempting but easy to kind of slide into well the reason things are going wrong in my parents marriage is because I did this wrong I did x mm-hmm. y or z and that just creates immense guilt for anyone to feel like, oh, this is happening because of me. And, you know, you hear this all the time with children of divorced parents is like, it's my fault. It's my fault they're divorced. And and so that can just wreak havoc in a young person's life. And so I certainly experienced some of that. Um, and I think some of that later as I was in college and in my 20s, beginning to understand that that wasn't why those things happened, um, that, that alcoholism is, is an addiction, but it's also a disease and that it was also something that my dad didn't necessarily want. He didn't, he didn't want to prioritize alcohol over his relationship with my mom or with Mm -hmm. us as his children. Um, but, but it's a disease and that is a part of this that I have to keep in mind. And so being able to do some of that work to give context, to say, okay, this didn't happen just because I did, I, I kissed my girlfriend too much or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, But you know, that's, that's kind of where you go when you're that age. It
1: is. And and honestly, I I mean, I'll speak for adults too. Like I've been there, you know, and, and it kind of, I think mirrors how to your point a little bit mirrors, how our earthly father, how we grew up, like if your dad was a strong disciplinarian, you know, not abusive, but just strict and kind of had this line that you, I mean, you kind of think, when you become a christian you're like okay it's kind of how it goes and this god you know this guy that i can see i'm sure the god that i can't see is similar in how he disciplines and 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 i do believe god disciplines his children because he loves them but i i I was in that whole cause and effect like okay i did this and then this bad thing happened oh that must have been because of me i get it (laughs) man and and i can only imagine it probably is compounded with teenagers um I mean it's cool. Are you so are you currently youth ministry now or are you a senior pastor now or
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm a lead pastor. My wife and I planted Bright City Church in 2018 and so we are about 5 6 years into a church plant Very and cool. came through COVID, which was its own kind of nightmare.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah, perfect but, timing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know, man. I'm like, if I would have known a pandemic was coming, I might needed God to show up in physical form to say, "No, I really want you to plant this (laughs) journey.
1: Right, right, right. Well, um, I guess so. I like doing what I call a life sentence, and not to paint this whole, you know, morbid picture of of you in in the penitentiary (laughs) but no everybody gets everybody has to go through this uh that comes on my podcast anyway so life sentence and you're going to complete the sentence for me um and it's going to be from your perspective of course your story and and kind of what your take is on certain things so this will kind of peel back a few of the layers for the audience um okay so pretty simple on the first one i'll lob you a softball here um my childhood heroes were
0: Uh, I would say, in in one case, Billy Graham was a big one. I I wanted to be an evangelist, a preacher. Um, so in a lot of ways he was a childhood hero. Um, and then outside of that, I think um,
1: uh, you could even just say general terms like uh, college coach or you know yeah, yeah. youth minister kind of you leader know, at college, I, whatever.
0: I, I, uh, I loved the guys in, especially in, in professional sports that did two professional sports, you know, that you're like, all right, you're doing this, man. Bo and Dion, baby. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Where you're like, wow, not only one sport, you are professional in two. That's incredible. So yeah, Yeah. Bo and Dion were a couple of those for sure. Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, cool. Maybe someday you'll arrive and be able to talk about yourself in third person (laughs) like Prime does. Um, There you go. So, all right. Well, so I I got another one here. Um, the hardest seasons of childhood that taught me the most were?
0: For sure, one of the hardest seasons, but also one that was pivotal for my faith was ninth grade year of high school. Um, you know, that season where you're in a new school, you are the bottom of the totem pole all over again. (laughs) You are the freshman on the team. And in that, there's this, this temptation to try to prove yourself and to try to make yourself fit in. And that season of my life was really defining because I remember very distinctly trying to do those things. I remember guys on my soccer team that had Certain magazines on the back of the bus, you know, that they were looking at, and it was kind of like, okay, who am I going to be? Am I going to participate in this? Am I going to tell the crew jokes? Am I going to? And there was just this, this uh, kindness of God, where in those moments where I tried to fit in, it didn't work, you know, in the sense that like I told a crew joke because I thought people would think it was funny, and they didn't think it was funny. And mm. I remember in those moments thinking, well, if this isn't going to give me what i think it does like Mm -hmm. why should i try to be somebody i'm not and instead i'm just going to embrace like this is who god has called me to be as a a disciple so it was a hard season because you're kind of realizing okay i'm not going to necessarily fit in with everybody but it was also foundational for my faith in a lot of ways so
1: wow yeah uh I, the eighth and ninth grade man was just—I—I yeah. I don't remember a tougher time in life. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is for everybody, I'm sure. But you know, especially if you're not one of like the superstars, and you know, even if yeah. you are, it's still just awkward. Um, yeah. But you know, I've got teenagers that are in that. Yeah, they're in high school now, but I've had two older ones that graduated college and are doing life. And then I've got two teenagers in high school and and they're all involved in youth group. And I can't, I man, I can't imagine had I been around that, you know, that core group of spirituals foundation, like there would have been transformation, like radical changes different than what I went through. And so I, in a way, so give me an idea. Maybe this is you talking here. So, mm-hmm my trauma became my triumph when blank
0: when i realized that this wasn't the end of the story uh that 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 what happened that this kind of goes back to the scars versus rebirth marks you know they are things that we can either look back and say okay This is an indication of what happened. Let me tell you the story of it. And it's a scar versus an indication of future to come, a rebirth mark being in in faith, this kind of indication that my future will be different than my past. And when it comes to our traumas, then, um, you know, there's this language where we always see our trauma in the present, meaning we don't think of it as just something that happened long ago. Our bodies react in moments as if it's still happening right now. That, that's why mm-hmm. we have PTSD. We have trauma responses is because it's not necessarily just in the past. And so being able to say, okay, if it's not in the past, what is it going to do? What am I going to do with it in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that was the pivotal point was realizing it's not a question of whether this affects my future. It's how is it going to affect my future and how am I going to exercise some responsibility over that?
1: Yeah. Tell me, uh, maybe tell, tell the listeners help us understand the fine line between using our past, um, and, and just allowing it to re-break our heart again every time mm-hmm. we think about it mm-hmm. or yeah, using it so we don't repeat certain things. Now, obviously mm-hmm. when you're a victim of something, that's not really at play, but as Mm -hmm. that kind of leads to things that we do and self-inflict those wounds, like Mm -hmm. talk to me about the value and sort of seeing in that rear view mirror as building blocks, which is what you're talking Mm -hmm. about versus like, Oh yeah, I just keep going back there. I can't shake it. And I just keep re-breaking my heart like a thousand times a year. Talk about that a little.
0: So I think that is a huge part. And, uh, you know, I don't know, kind of your thoughts on this, but you know that's where I really think counseling is an important piece of things. Uh, The reason being is that it's not just that happened, now let me take it and do something with it, but there has to be a period of healing. Mm. There has to be some work done to understand how has what happened to me shaped me. I mean, that's a big part of what I do in the book is talk through, here are the ways that it shaped me. It made me a people pleaser. It made me uh, sort of morph into whoever I thought people around me wanted me to be. It turned mm-hmm. me into someone who could be really deceptive because I wanted you to believe the best about me, even if that meant I had to lie about something. Wow. Yeah. Um, it it made me into somebody who had no boundaries because I was afraid that boundaries would offend you or that they would come off as uh, aggressive in some way. And so I don't have any boundaries. And we have to be able to name how it's affected us so that they don't continue to affect us that way in the future. And so Mm. I think the key difference between the two is, have you taken the time? Have you invited people into your life, whether that is a trusted pastor or a counselor to help you understand what happened, how it's shaped you and what healing you need to do before you move forward with it. There's got to be a season of healing in there.
1: I like that. No, that's a good, good answer. Cause I mean, it, there are certain things like, right. You, you, you treat a, a scrape when you fall off your bike differently than you cut your, mm-hmm. you know, almost cut your finger off, you know, in that's the right. kitchen. like certain things really do need some serious attention um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and some, because the hemorrhage. Figuratively, you know, emotionally, the hemorrhage can be one of those that you can't do on your own. Uh, one of those you can't fix on your own. So, no, I like that answer. Um, so let me, before we get in, and, and this is all good stuff, man. And we are going to get into the book because I know that's why you're here is to, is to get people to kind of hear it. But um, I guess give me an idea what a win looks like. So I shut your book. I turned the last page. I shut it. I've read it. What's a win look like from your eyes of somebody that finishes it and then they do what next? Like what's a win for that?
0: Some of it depends on where somebody is when they come into the book. Um, If somebody has kind of grown up in a context where the, the thinking was, well, whatever pain you've had, you just need to pray about it and God will heal it. And that, that not, not being untrue, but it may be being a little more nuanced than that. Uh, they, they are feeling like, well, I did pray about it and it's still painful. It hasn't gone away. Um, a win for that person is realizing, okay, that doesn't mean it's impossible. There, there are things that I can do. There is a process for healing. Um, there are things that I can do to still experience healing. I don't have to give up hope. Uh, that's a win for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, for somebody who has maybe come in from this place of, I can't talk about this because it'll make me look weak. Um, mm-hmm. For them to kind of finish the book and say, you know what? No, it would actually be incredibly strong. It would take incredible strength for me to actually talk about some of this stuff. To go to somebody and to talk about it. That's a win for wow. somebody who maybe is coming in and they've 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 done some some counseling and some therapy um, and but haven't really brought God into that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they come out of this book saying, "No, God does have something to say about my healing. He does want to use my wounds. He does want to use what I've been through uh, to help others heal." That's a win for them. And yeah. so, a lot of it depends on where they're coming in. But the biggest thing, no matter where somebody's is coming in from it is to be able to leave it saying something to the effect of the pain that I have been through does not define my future. Mm -hmm. That's what I want people to come out of it with. And then to be able to say, if it doesn't define my future, how do I move forward Mm -hmm. into the future?
1: Yep. Yep. I think, I mean, that's, that's, that should be, I would think, the goal of most people that write a book like this is that somebody yeah. feels empowered and encouraged to not only share it with somebody because that's a lot. I would say it's a lot of people is everything's just bottled up and they're just kind of either hoping it goes away or there's feeling yeah. like I can patch this up as I go and we'll be yeah. good, right? We're going to patch the holes that's in true. the boat. And and so, yeah, I think that's good, man. Um, so I got some stats from a, a website website which is Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So mm-hmm. um SAMHSA.gov or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And this is just kind of, I'm just, I know everybody knows, yes, there's a lot of trauma out there and young people are experiencing child abuse, those kinds of things. But I, I just feel like it's important to, I don't think it can be said enough and raise awareness yeah. enough for it. But so at least one in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the last 12 months. Um, These are all pretty recent. I mean, twenty twenty ish. Eighteen hundred and forty children died of abuse and neglect in the United States. It's crazy. I don't. That's. I mean, that seems like a lot. Um, Each day, more than a thousand youth are treated in emergency departments for physical assault-related injuries. So I don't know what your story is about physical. Maybe yours didn't fall into that category, but I mean, I think kind of this overarching trauma can apply to to everybody and your book can apply to anybody um, that's going through some of that. And then each day, 14 youth die from homicide, which that could be a wide range of things. Um, 1300 are treated in emergency departments from from violence related injuries. So um, yes, physical abuse is a thing. Emotional abuse can almost be more like long-term damage. from Some of that. Did you ever come across, like, did you ever experience like, I guess go into some of the degree to which you felt like there was this traumatic thing happening in your life. Because when you mentioned divorce, I think, you know, maybe some listeners are going, well, okay, everybody went through a divorced household. You know, I mean, that seems Mm -hmm. common. Unfortunately, it seems Mm -hmm. common. Did you go through some serious, like, situations without – I mean, be as comfortable as you want to be. but Yeah,
0: um. you know, what's tricky, and, and this is true for anyone that grows up in this context, is it's hard to know how bad my situation is because it's the only situation I know. I mean, I can see my friends. I can kind of see from the outside what they've gone through, but I don't know what's abuse and what's not. You know, it's just what I've experienced, and so I think for that reason – probably only within the last four to five years that I really acknowledged that I did experience some physical abuse. And the reason being the stories that I did hear about physical abuse of children were like the worst case scenarios where kids were going to school with abuse with bruises and marks on them, you know? And so I kind of felt like, well, I didn't, I didn't experience that. But when I started talking about some of the things that happened, like for example, my dad, you know, one morning chasing me downstairs because I woke him up too early and like kicking me while I'm laying on the floor. Like when I started to say that out loud, you're like, okay, that is not acceptable. That's not okay. Yeah, that's not okay. Um, So there were certainly some instances of that. Um, I think more than anything though, what I experienced was a level of verbal abuse. Mm. um, Meaning my dad could be extremely harsh. I mean, he would say things at times like, I'm going to hell because you kids make me cuss so much and um, just different things that were just not okay to say to kids, things Mm -hmm. that you put on them. And so it was, it was, it was some of that um, that I experienced more than anything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there was, there was certainly some of that present, but also realizing there were, there were people that experienced much worse. Right. Right.
1: I mean, cause sometimes it can sort of seem like, well, okay, I did do something bad and it kind of warranted, you know, a a correction. But then you're like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, maybe that's just how it is. Like maybe that's just like, you know, he's just mad and that's how he gets his point across. So did you ever – I guess going through talking about your book, you know, good bag, by the way, good baggage. What a, what a title. Like that's, that's amazing. Um, cause I mean, you, you, there's several checkpoints that a title needs to hit. And I'm guessing that hit all of them. Um, cause it catches your eye and you're like, nothing's good. No baggage is good. Wait a minute. Let me read that.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah. you know,
1: um, you talk about relational intentionality, empathy, you talk about the commitment to develop better relationships. Um, and, and those are awesome. And we need to probably get into some of that. Um, I wonder, though, when you're talking about just what you experienced. Forgiveness is the big F word that people have a hard time with, Um, and I'm sure you go into some of that. What what sort of enabled you like what was a breakthrough moment for you to know that, A, you needed to get there, like you needed to Mm -hmm. achieve this level of forgiveness? And then how practically how did you actually do that? Like, because it's. Conceptually, we get it sometimes, but like pragmatically, dude, that can be a day to day like battle and journey.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of the pivotal things for me was actually in a course in college. I read a book on forgiveness and it was in a psychology class, uh, actually. But the story was written from the perspective of someone who had as a as a child experienced incest. And they're writing on kind of their process to forgiveness and obviously just such a tragic situation. Um, But in that book, one of the things that they talk about that was so helpful. And again, maybe we get this on a conceptual level, but really internalizing it is another thing. But understanding that um, forgiveness is not like something didn't happen. Forgiveness is choosing to no longer allow what you did to me to determine how I interact with you or others on the basis of that. So that doesn't mean I have to trust you now that I have to just pretend like that didn't happen. Let's just go back to the way things were. But I also don't have to live with this overwhelming bitterness towards you or treat other people with anger and contempt because I'm still angry about what you did to me. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that in some ways on some level, forgiveness is something that I do for my own freedom. Yeah. Be free from that as much as anything, but Mm -hmm. as well for us to be able to understand, you know, part of what, what God did for us through Christ on the cross was to say, I'm not saying what you did was okay. I'm not pretending like it didn't happen. Um, but I'm no longer going to allow the decisions that you made to determine how I feel about you. And that being sort of on a conceptual level, what forgiveness was, but then on a very practical level, what that meant was, I think kind of to your point, a lot of times we resist to do the work to heal from our childhoods. Cause we're like, why do I have to do the work? I didn't, I didn't do this to myself. This is because somebody else did it to me. And so we almost treat it as if, well, I'm going to punish them by not doing the work that that will help me to be better. Right. And instead being able to say, well, part of their forgiveness is part of me forgiving them is also not allowing on a practical level to let what they did continue to wreak havoc in my life. Um, That in my anger towards them, I'm not going to let that perpetuate, what they did to me and me do the same thing to my kids and, and create the cycles. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of it in there. That's about um, the freedom that forgiveness gives me mm-hmm. from the continued impact of what they've done to us.
1: That's good. No, that's it's a great explanation. And I can't imagine how non-believers cope with that dynamic of forgiveness. Like, because you and I can hear, okay, It says it right there in black and white, like forgive because you've been forgiven. And Mm -hmm. basically, you know, it's a command, like it's a command to do this. And, you know, if you're not along the lines of a Christian worldview, man, you're struggling because you're thinking what you just said. You're like. Dude, I, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Number two, I, I'm not doing all the work. You know, they they need to get yeah. it figured out, and I'm not gonna. And I would think proximity sort of deal, you know, has an effect on how long it takes maybe somebody to get there. Because, like, if I have to live with you every day, yeah, forgiving you today may not be okay like it's not gonna happen yeah like, we, that's right but if if for some reason maybe that person passed you know and maybe you it took you years to get there with your dad and maybe he passed and then all of a sudden you're you're there i don't know but i would think yeah. the the time it takes um and there's not a right or wrong answer but i think the time it takes to, it depends a little bit on how often you interact because you hear yeah. the word reconcilia- reconciliation right i don't i think people think that forgiveness means i got to interact with you you got to be in my life right i'm giving you a pass on what you because it's really not that so i'm glad you said that it's not about that person it's about you what else do you have to add yeah
0: so you know you touch on something good there too which is if if it's somebody that you are day-to-day doing life with one of the things that i have a lot of conversations with people about both in my church but also in these kinds of conversations is you know somebody who's in a relationship with Uh, someone who has a substance use disorder or an addiction of some sort, one of the unhealthy things that happens is the, the spouse or the partner of that person is constantly being asked to forgive the other spouse, you know, to just, just forgive them for what they did. And on the one hand, yes, I understand that. On the other hand, it's difficult to forgive someone if they haven't truly repented of the action. That's true. And so I think a lot of us carry this guilt of like, why can't I just forgive them? And the reason is you shouldn't be able to forgive somebody who is continuing to wound you. There's got to be some repentance on their part, some genuine life change before they can demand forgiveness of you. And Mm -hmm. so that being a really important piece of this is, is being able to know that if you're continuing to be wounded by this person, don't add on to that the shame and guilt of I can't forgive them. I'm, I'm struggling to forgive them. Of course, you're struggling to forgive them. They're <laughs> still doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. That's yeah. I'm glad you added that. Um, it living with it on a daily basis, and you know, because we, apology is not repentance. Um, that's right. You know, someone that's asking right. forgiveness that while that's great, that's still not. Yeah. So the repentance component is important because they have to not only own it and then turn away from it and change behavior. And then over time, maybe that person can learn to trust, learn yeah. to forgive. But that's a process like that is not. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a good point. And
0: it, you t- I'll add to real quick. Yeah. You know, you mentioned in reconciliation. I, I think you make a great point too that. Reconciliation is not going to look the same in every relationship, meaning I think we have this idea that, well, if for reconciliation to have really happened, we've got to get back to this place of perfect harmony with one another. Mm
1: -hmm. And the reality
0: is there are no relationships that have perfect harmony. But second of all, there are relationships that reconciled if you can just be in the same room together again and not end up at each other you know like that's that is reconciliation and 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 instead of getting upset that it's not well we're not just perfectly reunited again celebrate the fact that you can be in the same room again so to speak and and so it just it's going to look different for every relationship is what i'm saying and to be able to say there are people you know especially when it comes to abuse that you shouldn't be in the same room with them again i'm not you know like certainly not alone but so be able to say you don't have to put yourself in danger again in order for there to be reconciliation to whatever degree is possible. I think is what I'm trying to say. With For that. sure.
1: For sure. Well, I'm going to ask you to do something a little weird right here, but get into <laughs> the mind of the offender if you can. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's not something heinous, you know, but let's just say a guy that cheats on his wife. Okay. And mm-hmm. they're still together. Uh, get into the mind of maybe that person who did the offense. Mm -hmm. What's a solid expectation? Because, I mean, I think we all think, okay, I did all these things. I checked all these boxes. And then by this time, by this season, we should be back. Like everything should be good. Like what, like you Mm -hmm. said, is a win. Like to your point, being in the same room without – fighting or her looking at you like Mm -hmm. she wants to kill you. Like that's a win Mm -hmm. today. Like talk to that person maybe because I don't know why I'm asking you to do that other than maybe give some hope to some guys out there that have done it wrong, have screwed up royally. What's a decent expectation moving forward with them?
0: Yeah. Well, I'll share my own journey. Uh, Part of my story was reaching a point where I was misusing, um, an anxiety medication that I was taking. And, um, I was using it to, you know, help me cope with day-to-day life. Um, and on top of that, my wife did not know how much of that I was taking. And so when that did become clear, there was, there was a lot of, there was pain for her. There was the sense of, do I know you? Do I, can I trust you when you're not with me to do the right thing. And, and, and so to say all of that, to say, I had to accept that it was probably going to take longer for her to trust me than I wanted her to, um, for us to feel like genuinely connected than I wanted us to, but that didn't mean she wasn't trying. It didn't mean she didn't want it to. It just she had experienced pain and um, uh, dishonesty and she was having to do some of her own work. And so just being able to know, okay, just because it's not happening yet doesn't mean she doesn't want it to happen as well. The other thing that I think for any of us who have been the offender is something that's going to happen to us is the shame of whatever we've done is going to also eat us up mm-hmm. and it's going to make us defensive. It's going to make us uh, uh, easily upset when somebody brings it up to us. Yep. And for us to know that that's only going to make it worse, it's not going to help. And to know, okay, if they want to talk about it, it's good for us to talk about it. Let me figure out how to do that without getting defensive because that's going to move us towards some healing. Um, yeah, it's, it's always going to take longer than we want it to. Uh, I said that already, but I think that that's an important piece of it. Um, but what I will say is in that process, and this is hard, especially for us as men to say, but our inclination, those conversations in those relationships, in those moments, is to lean towards self-protection. How do I defend myself? How do I um, explain, you know, why they should trust me? How do I, you know, whatever, or to be vulnerable and to share, like, you're right. I understand why you're feeling that way. I I understand why. So for me, you know, there was something about me stopping at a gas station that made my wife nervous. Like I was going to pick up something to drink or something. Instead of me getting defensive every time she was like, uh, did you go by a gas station today? And me getting defensive, like, why does that set you off? Me being able to say, I know, I know that triggers you. I understand. I understand that that triggers you. I'm going to let you know next time. If I have to stop by somewhere, I'm going to let you know. So instead of being defensive, how do I care for you in this moment in a way that's going to help us move towards healing, not slow it down?
1: Dang. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, That perspective is spot on, too. Like, that's real world. And sometimes we can almost... I don't know. I, I'm sure there's times in my life when I've done this, but we can almost gaslight the other person into being like, oh, yeah. making them feel guilty for reacting to something we did to hurt them. And that's it's like, right. What is <laughs> that's wrong right. with me? You know? And that's so, right. but it, it does go back to that selfishness in us that's like, oh, no, 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 no. I deserve, I've done all the things, I've checked all the boxes. I deserve this now. What's the outcome? Because guys are, right? Guys are like, if I do this, then this. And mm-hmm. we're very black and white and and objective with that kind of thing, but there's such a gray, subjective area in that mm-hmm. situation, and and so it's got we've got to be more of what you said and be like, yep, I get it. I drove past that place, and I understand you're watching me on 360, and uh, yeah. you know, like and and now you've got all this emotion stirred up, and the chemicals are firing, and yeah. reminding you. I get it. Yes. Like we need to be better yeah. at sort of seeing in there, there through that. Yeah, lens.
0: and for us, especially as men, I think shame drives us more than we realize. And what I mean by that is, in that moment where somebody says, "You know, you went by that place today," when I get defensive,
1: part fight of what flight, is creating baby. that
0: defensiveness, yes, it, it's fight or flight. It's also, it's the shame of because of what I did, you now believe this is who I am. And that's not who I am. Yeah, And so I got to defend, this is not who I am. I need to cover yeah. up. I need to prevent more shame from being put on my name kind of thing. Yeah. And in reality, what happens is in our uh, fear of shame and our, our reactivity to shame, it actually exacerbates the shame because now we go from a place of We did this thing that makes you feel this way about me creates this reaction in you. I get defensive. That makes our relationship worse. And now our relationship is falling apart. And I have the shame of our relationship falling apart. And so it's shame begets shame. And if we can't if until we are willing to say, okay, I'm gonna acknowledge I feel shame right now, but I'm not gonna let that determine my behavior. It's going to be really hard for us to change. course yeah. Of action,
1: and you and you talk about survival mechanisms too, and I can't help but think that mm-hmm. folds into some of this. Tell maybe unpack that where you're talking about recognizing those survival mechanisms, and yeah. obviously it might be from the victim side of things, but like, it, can mm-hmm. you incorporate that into into both and talk about? Yeah,
0: that? absolutely. So you know, when I talk about baggage, what I'm talking about is coping mechanisms that we develop in our childhood you know, or in a dysfunctional relationship that we then carry into a relationship that does not need those coping mechanisms. And it creates havoc there because you are operating in this relationship uh, with patterns that do not belong there. Well, where do those coping mechanisms come from? Those coping mechanisms come from sort of self-protective defense mechanisms that we develop uh, to protect ourselves. So for example, uh, to give you kind of an example from my life, with my father being an alcoholic, I never knew who was going to be when I walked into the room where he was at. Is he going to be in a good mood? Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be happy with me? Is he going to be upset with me? Is it going to be safe to be here? And so a, a sort of a self-protective coping mechanism I developed was the ability to read people, to be able to say, okay, is it safe to be here? If not, like, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? Um, and so it was a, a sort of a protective mechanism that now as an adult, every room I go into, I can read body language. I can read emotional cues. I can determine who's feeling good in this room, who's upset, who's sad. And I can use that. And sometimes I use it for good because it helps me to be empathetic. Other times I use that as a way to kind of manipulate things out of you or to, to try to gain your approval by caring for you by reading your mind that's it's kind of a a difficult example but another one that i think for us as children is if we experienced any kind of abuse then we begin to look for um, abusive patterns everywhere and we attempt to preemptively prevent abuse again not a bad thing it's it's something that we develop in a dysfunctional context as a self-protective thing. But now if we go into every relationship expecting abuse, that's going to have negative consequences on that relationship, right? Um, When it comes to shame, so as an offender of something, one of the things that I had to come to grips with was growing up in the environment I did where punishment was harsh, uh, sometimes abusive. um, I I developed this tendency where I did not want to be blamed for anything. Like if I didn't do it, I did not want to suffer the consequences of right. it. Right. And now I realize in my marriage that if I've done something wrong, my default is to deny it. I didn't do that. I, I, no, I didn't. I'm not responsible for that. And so it le- leads me to be deceptive, right? Because mm. I'm I'm afraid of of the consequences. Mm. It can lead me to um cover up shame. Like, I don't want you to think negatively of me because that will lead to other consequences. And so all of these ways that those environments created in us, these subconscious behavior patterns mm-hmm. that we then carry into other relationships.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think about when you talk about walking into a room, I'm thinking about like, as people, we can, we have two contrasting or we can have two contrasting extremes of, I'm thinking of a turtle that goes into its shell, right? When they're in an environment Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. maybe dangerous or threatening. And then we've got a skunk who sprays everything. So we've got guys that can walk into a room and just kind of pee all over their territory and, and have Mm -hmm. this pronounced like quote unquote charisma, but they're really just trying to own the room. Then they're covering something up or they got these people, these guys that are super sink into a hole of themselves Mm -hmm. and never really experience life because you know they're afraid. Maybe there's going to be some. You know the thermostat's not really what they want it to be. So it creates this fear, right? So I think we yeah. have two extremes in guys and the way we carry ourselves based on trauma that we've experienced, or if it, even if it's not trauma, just life experiences, relationships. Absolutely. Maybe a little bit of hurt in an you know relationship. Yeah. Now we're going into them. As this turtle, you know, kind of sinking in and, and then the wife kind of runs the show and tells you what to do because you've been scared all your life. So I don't even know why I brought that up, but I think it does manifest itself right into how we either spray the room or we kind of dig a hole and get in it.
0: Right. And pain and fear drive us so much more than we're even aware of. I mean, mm-hmm. our like you said, it doesn't have to be trauma. It just has to be. I experienced a pain in that relationship. And this relationship is reminding me of that. And so I'm reacting to you on the basis of the way this reminds me of previous pain and it wasn't trauma. It was just pain. Right. Um, And so you're right. Pain and fear drive us so much more than we even realize. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I, you know, I'm trying not to give away too much of the book so people
0: (laughs) read it. it, Right. But,
1: but I got one more thing for you. Yeah. Um, Go for it. And, and this may, I mean, it'll obviously kind of dig into some more of the book, but it's just kind of getting your final, maybe closing remarks on this conversation. But what can people start, stop, and continue doing to win this sort of mental health battle when it comes to how we recover from things in the past, maybe something we're going through now, maybe just insecurities and fear, like you were talking about, start, stop and continue. So give us the three headed monster here of what people can do to, to make it and win, not just survive, but thrive through this mental health situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, the thing that I want people to start doing, and again, this is assuming they're not already doing this, sure. but I want I want people to start reflecting on uh, um, their painful interactions with others. You know, an interaction that I had with somebody that created a reaction in me. Start reflecting on that because that's going to help you understand. What's going on below the surface that yeah. made it so painful? Typically, when, when a relational interaction creates pain, it's because something deeper down has been offended, hurt, been reminded of. And so we start reflecting on our painful mm-hmm. relational interactions, which will lead to what we need to stop doing, which is stop taking our pain out on each other. Right. If if I don't know why I did it, I'm going to blame you for it. Yeah. <laughs> and so if I can start start reflecting on it, I will stop blaming you for it. I'll stop taking my pain out on you. And then to continue to continue. I think the thing that comes to mind and again, this may depend on, you know, is somebody sure. already doing this? Mm-hmm. But I think we do this on some level and I want people to continue doing it, which is continue bringing your pain to God. Mm. God is not too big for your pain. Mm -hmm. God is not too small for your pain. Your pain is not too big for God. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do for our intimacy with God is bring our pain to God. And I say that because a lot of times we come to prayer um, in a very inauthentic way. I pray this prayer because it's the way I've heard people pray before or it's how I've always prayed. Um, But it's not really bringing what you're feeling and dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. And so continue to bring your pain to God, but maybe do it in a more authentic, real way than you've ever done it before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We can get, I mean, we can get sucked into the routine and the religion Mm -hmm. aspect of prayer rather than talking to somebody like a relationship and interacting in a two way way. You know, two-way dialogue and and what I mean by that is just what God's revealing in your spirit, right? Not necessarily yeah. verbally, audibly talking, but you know, um, yeah, we could get more on that level of hey, this is a relationship. Like there's some meaning yeah. here, there's some things here we got to talk, you know, we got to address. And so yeah, no, I think that's good, man. Um, start, stop, and continue. I like that. And and I'll add too is continue to invite people that you trust into some of this process because you hit on it earlier when you said counseling and, and I have no problem with that. You know, therapists have definitely have a place. Are they the end all be all to everything? No, but nothing is really other than your relationship with the father. And, and so, no, I think you should continue to invite and, and you gotta, you gotta be filtering some of those too on who you can trust. And, and, and so anyway, um, that's right. Good baggage is the book. Uh, gentlemen, go get some of that because I think we definitely have guys who maybe that's what's prohibiting us and obstructing our progress in the search for biblical masculinity, the way we lead our yeah. home spiritually. I think that there is maybe a kink in that hose and maybe the the power source is not fully uh, being activated man. because we're still holding sure. on right to some of that. So, right. man, uh, I really appreciate it. Audience, he's been... The one and only Ike Miller, we've been last in line. Be blessed.